you just kind of flip through them, you might think, well, this is kind of boring. Because they're mainly just names of people. That's a bulk of these last few chapters. There's just a ton of names in here. You might think, oh my, what, what in the world is all this about? Uh, well, these chapters will be boring to you if you don't understand them. If you don't understand them. They will be, and uh, that's where I come in. Uh, I want to help you understand them. You see, these chapters will be boring to you if you don't understand them, if you don't see how remarkable this is. Yes, there are a bunch of names in these last few chapters, but, but every name listed here is a name of a sinner, of an idolater, of a rebel who God loves and desires a relationship with. And so you might as well just add your name in here, and I'll add mine. I am a sinner who God loves and desires a relationship with. And these last four chapters that we're going to cover in the next three weeks they are really a microcosm of the whole Bible. A microcosm of the whole Bible. Today, we're going to look at chapter 10. Chapter 10 of Nehemiah, if you want to turn there now. And chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, to me, are a microcosm of the entire Bible. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because they are the story of a perfectly holy God desiring friendship with sinners. That's the story. It begins with chapter 10. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that after Israel repented of sin, they committed to signing a covenant. Signing a covenant. Uh, an agreement with God. That's what a covenant is. It's a binding agreement. And so that is actually in chapter 9, verse 38. Okay, they agreed to all sign this covenant before their God. And now in chapter 10, we have the names of the people who signed it. Now, this covenant is not brand new. This is not something they just made up on the fly here. Uh, they, this is the covenant of Moses. Okay? Uh, the, Israel's just renewing that covenant here. Okay? They're not making up anything new. They are renewing the covenant agreement uh, between God and Moses. Okay? Uh, and so this is not a new covenant, this is an old covenant, and this is one that they have already broken many, many, many times before. Many times. And so here they are wanting to renew that covenant, to start again. They're wanting a do-over. They're wanting a do-over. And so they want to sign a, a new covenant to follow God. And we see in the first 28 verses, if you look at them there, uh, that pretty much everybody in Jerusalem signed it. Pretty much everybody signed it. Uh, even some who are not Jews, but serve Yahweh. They're not Jews, but they serve Yahweh. They signed it also. And in verse 29, we see that uh, they even bound themselves to a curse if they break the covenant this time. So they broke it a bunch of times before, but now they're saying, hey God, we're serious this time, <laughs> and we're going to sign ourselves over to a curse if we do not keep this covenant with you. So let's look at verse 29, chapter 10, 
verse 29. It says, All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Now, did you also notice that they bind themselves to something else here? And this is crucial. It's crucial. They bind themselves to the law of God. To the law of God. This is a Bible-centered covenant. A Bible-centered covenant. Is that me? Do I need to switch mics? Check, one, two, check. Here we go. So they bind themselves to the law of God, which is what? Scripture. They bind themselves to this. You see that? Verse 29. They bind themselves to God's word. Now, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, though the wall has already been rebuilt here in Nehemiah, the work of God is not finished. It's not finished. The wall is finished, but the work is not. You see, God still desires to rebuild his people. And how does he do that? Right here. Through his word. That is how God rebuilds his people. Now, as I've said before, if life's journey wanted to draw a crowd, we could do that no problem. No problem. I know exactly how to draw a crowd. We could draw a huge crowd here in just a few weeks. Give me a few weeks and we'll draw a huge crowd here at Life's Journey. It's pretty easy, actually. All we'd have to do is put our elders in Easter Bunny costumes, set up bouncy houses in the parking lot for the kids, have iPad giveaways, and put together a laser light show for the worship music. That's all we'd have to do. We draw a big crowd. There are lots of churches that do those very things today. Those very things, you probably passed a bunch of them on your way here. And they draw big, big crowds on Sundays. They do. But we are not interested in drawing a crowd at Life's Journey. We are interested in building a church. And that's a different thing altogether. And there is only one way to build a church. There's only one way Jesus builds his church. And here it is. This is it. There's no other way to do it. Christ builds his church on his word. On his words. Period. If I had a handheld mic, I would just drop it right there. There's only one way that Christ builds his church, and that's through his word. So the people of Israel strayed from God's word, and now they are determined to return to it. They are determined. They're not just saying no to sin. They're saying yes to Scripture. They're saying yes to the Bible, and that is exactly what true repentance looks like. It's exactly what it looks like. It's a turning away from sin and turning to God and his word. That's what repentance is. We would do well to follow Israel's example and commit 
fully to this book and this book alone. We would do very well to follow their example. Uh, that is why our life groups here at Life's Journey study through books of the Bible. That's why they're set up that way. Uh, and they're not set up to follow topic-driven books about the Bible. Okay? We don't want to know about the Bible. We want to know the Bible. That's what we want to know here at Life's Journey. Now, that is not to say you can't ever read anything except the Bible. I have hundreds of books. If you've ever been in my office, you can see that. I have hundreds of books. So I'm not saying you can't ever read anything other than the Bible, but what I am saying is the Bible should be primary. The Bible should take absolute, absolute, the absolute highest central place in your life. And it should take the absolute highest central place at life's journey. We all sit under the Word and the Word alone. No other book takes that same place. Only Scripture guides us. It is central. And we see here that Israel, yes, recommits to Scripture. But what's interesting is they commit to, uh, Nehemiah at least mentions specifically three areas of Scripture that they're going to recommit to. Three areas uh, that we should probably commit to also, since their Scripture is also our Scripture, right? So these are probably three areas we should commit to also. The first is marriage in verse 30. The second is the Sabbath in verse 31. And the third is temple worship in verses 32 through 39. Let's look at the first one, honoring God's word about marriage. Verse 30, let's look at verse 30. The people of Israel say, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Now, this is not racism. This is not racism. When they say they're not giving their daughters to outsiders, they're saying we are not giving our daughters to unbelievers. That's what they're saying, okay? Uh, this is not a race issue. It's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. Um, and God told his people clearly not to marry those outside the faith. It's clear. Now, there have always been outsiders or Gentiles marrying Israelites that God is totally cool with. Totally cool with. Now, why is God cool with them? Because those outsiders worshipped Yahweh. They worshipped Israel's God. So, of course, Israel's God is totally cool with that. Again, this isn't a race issue. This is a worship issue. Uh, as if you remember our Christmas series, there are even Gentiles in Jesus's genealogy. Okay, so the issue is belief, it's faith, it's worship, it is not race. So for us today, the same principle applies. The same exact principle applies. Interracial marriage is fine. Interreligious marriage is not fine. It's not fine. God does not want us to be unequally yoked. Now, why is that? Why should we only yoke ourselves with believers? Well, there's two reasons, at least two. Number one, because unity in marriage is impossible. It's impossible if you can't agree on who God is. 
it's just literally impossible. A few years ago, a, a good Christian, Christian friend of mine uh, had been dating a girl for a long time. But he was, uh, he was thinking about marrying her, but he was a little hesitant. And so, and so he called me up and he said, hey man, you know, she is so great. She's so great in so many ways. We get along so well. We agree on almost everything in life. We have all the same hobbies. Uh, we think the same way about politics, about children, uh, the importance of hard work. There's only one hang-up, and that is she is an atheist. She's an atheist. But other than that, things are great. I said, dude, break up with her. You have to break up with her. I don't care how long you've been dating. I don't care what you have in common as far as hobbies go. If you don't have the same picture of God, it ain't going to work. I hate to break it to you. It ain't going to work. And it didn't. He did not take my advice right away, but eventually their relationship turned really sour. And guess what issue brought it to that state? Yeah, God, belief in God, soured their relationship. Now, the second reason God wants us to only marry believers is that that's God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage is for marriage to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. That's the purpose. It's the same in the Old Testament. The marriage covenant was designed to reflect the covenant between God and his people. Now, here's a really important note, super important note. If right now you're a believer, married to an unbeliever, the New Testament tells you to stay with them and serve them so that you might win them to Christ. This is one of the most challenging but rewarding situations a Christian can be in. If that's you here tonight, I want you to know that God has power and grace for you. Power and grace for you. So take heart. There have been countless times throughout church history where a Christian spouse has led their unbelieving spouse to Christ. It's happened thousands and thousands of times. So take heart. You talk about a celebration? <laughs> that will be a celebration, boy. That will be a celebration. That will be one of the greatest moments of your life. So take heart. There is power and grace for you if you're in that situation. Okay, the second thing they recommit to is honoring God's word about the Sabbath. Honoring God's word about the Sabbath. Look at verse 31. 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. Okay, so here's what's happening. The Jews were commanded by God not to work on the Sabbath day. Not to work on the Sabbath day. But the Jews found a loophole. The Jews found a loophole. They didn't work their goods on the Sabbath, but they did buy goods from others. They did buy goods from others. So that's the loophole. You see, that's the loophole. They're not working, but they're forcing others to work because they're buying their goods. And this violates the very spirit of God's law. 
The Sabbath was, in essence, an expression of trust in God. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of trust in that, hey, you know what? I'm going to lay my work boots to the side. I'm going to put my shovel down. I'm going to say, Lord, I just trust you with my income, with my well-being. I'm just going to rest in you today and trust you that your word is true and that you'll take care of me. It's an issue of trust. But with this loophole, Israel was saying, yeah, no. Yeah, uh, we really don't trust you that much, God. We don't really trust you to meet our needs. So the next part of the Sabbath, this is really kind of three parts of the Sabbath. The next part of the Sabbath command came every seven years. So instead of every seven days, it's every seven years. And that's why they say here uh, in verse 31, every seventh year we will forego working the land. Now, this is ultimate trust in God, isn't it? I'm not giving up a day of work. I'm giving up a year. Huh? I'm giving up a year of work. Uh, and then the third part of the Sabbath is, is the same. So it happens every seventh year, uh, if you see here. Uh, and, and what happens that every seventh year is that if anyone owed you anything, any amount of money, great or small, you had to release them from the debt every seven years, which is why they say here, uh, if you notice, they say, we cancel all debts. Cancel all debts. Now, Israel was well aware that they did not keep the Sabbath, like, at all. <laughs> they did not keep the Sabbath at all. Uh, they either totally ignored it or found loopholes around it. And that was one of the reasons God sent them into eg exile in the first place. And would you like to know how long that they were in exile? 70 years. Israel was in exile 70 years. Now, you think that's an accident? That God made them endure 10 cycles of Sabbath? I promise you Israel didn't see it as an accident. I promise you that. That's why one of the first things they do when they return to Jerusalem is what? Recommit to the Sabbath. Recommit. They're like, okay, God, we get it. We get it. <laughs> we are recommitting to the Sabbath, honoring what your word says about the Sabbath. Now, what does this have to do with you and me? Well, God still wants us to honor the Sabbath, but that just looks a little different for you and me. Uh, but I will explain what that looks like for us in a minute. Meanwhile, let's look at the, uh, the third principle they commit to, uh, recommit to, and that is honoring God's word about the temple. Honoring God's word about the temple. Let's look at verses 32 through 39. 32 through 39. They say, We assume the responsibility of carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and the appointed festivals, for the, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree, as it is also written in the law. 
We will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. So did you, did you notice something repeated here? As it is written. As it is written. Israel is recommitting not to just some arbitrary spiritual principles. No, they are committing to God's word. That's what they are recommitting themselves to. Now, here uh, in the verses we just read are listed nine promises. Nine promises to care for the temple. The temple. Uh, culminating in the last sentence of verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. What they're committing to do is ensure that temple worship happens exactly as God wants. Again, they're, they're, they're recommitting to what God has said, not what they feel like is good or what they feel like God's want, God wants, but exactly what God has said is what they are returning to, okay? Uh, and so one of the great pains Israel endured in exile was not having the temple to offer sacrifices and worship in. This greatly grieved Israel. Uh, and so now that the wall is rebuilt, you know, they're back from exile, Nehemiah's got the wall taken care of, they are really excited to return to temple worship. They're pumped, okay? Uh, and so verses 32 and 33, those are the temple dues, uh, which provide for the work that goes on in the temple, verses 34 through 35, are additional uh, provisions that have to be made. So there has to be a ton of wood in the temple because the fire is supposed to burn 24-7. There's got to be a lot of wood. Uh, and then there are first fruits mentioned in verse 35. Verse 36, the firstborn sons would be symbolically offered to the Lord. Uh, and then livestock would be given for the sacrifices. Verses 37 through 39 is a list of tithes that were to be given to support the workers in the temple. Now, you and I do not worship in a temple. We do, we do not worship in a temple. This is not a temple. This is an old gym. Okay? <laughs> this is not God's temple. All right? Um, and, but here is the, the thing we need to take away from this. This is not a temple anymore. You and I are the temple now. Okay? Uh, but... The principles here still apply. The principles still apply just in a different way. So today we do support the work of ministry. We support ministers and we support the spread of the gospel. This is still the responsibility of the people of God. The New Testament makes this point crystal clear. Like crystal clear. 
This is still the responsibility of the people of God to support the ministers of the gospel. Okay, so in conclusion tonight, Israel has recommitted to the Bible and specifically three biblical commands. They've literally signed their names to it. Right? They signed their names to it. And you and I would do well to follow their example of recommitting to God's word and these commands. But here's my closing question. What happens when we blow it? What happens when we blow it? What happens when we don't read our Bible? Commit to it. When we screw up our marriage, when we don't honor the Sabbath, when we're selfish with our money, what happens? Because let's be real here tonight. Can we just be real? We're family. We're family. Let's be real. It will not take very long for you and for me to blow it. It won't take very long. You know how I know? First, through my own life experience of constantly blowing it. Secondly, we will see in just two chapters over in the book of Nehemiah, the Israelites totally blow it. Just two chapters. You can cheat if you want and look over there. We'll see just Two chapters from now, Israel totally blow it. The ink isn't even dry on the covenant they sign before they blow it. Uh, pretty unbelievable. The ink's not even dry before they blow it. So if God's chosen people can't do it, you and me, we ain't got no shot. Sorry. We don't have a shot, so what do we do? What do we do? Well, we need to come back to point number two that I didn't finish earlier. Did you know that every one of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament? Somewhere in the New Testament, they're repeated. Did you know that? Every one of the commandments reappears in the New Testament except for one. One command does not make it in to the New Testament. Would you like to know which one that is? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That does not appear anywhere in the New Testament. Hmm. Why? Why is the Sabbath command not repeated? Because in the New Testament, the Sabbath is no longer a day. The Sabbath is a person. The Sabbath is a person. In the Old Testament, Jews were constantly laboring to make themselves acceptable to God. And there are many Christians today doing the same. Their labors in the Old Testament included trying to obey the myriad of do's and don'ts of God's law. 
of course, they couldn't possibly keep all the laws. No matter how many covenants they signed, they could not keep these laws. But there would come one who would. There would come one who would. Just as God sanctified the Sabbath day, he would sanctify his son and send him into the world to fulfill the law, the entire law, and to be our sacrifice for sin. In Christ, then, you and I find complete rest for our souls. We find complete rest rest from the labors of our self-effort because Christ alone is holy and righteous. Christ alone met all the requirements of God's law. The only work left for us to do is to have faith in Jesus' work. That's the only work left, is to have faith in Jesus' work. Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul says this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first, to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. By faith. Believers, listen to me. We can now cease. We can lay our work boots to the side. We can lay our shovels down down at Jesus' feet. We can rest in our Savior who has accomplished all. Not just one day a week, but every second of every day of every week, always and forever. Now, does this mean we rest from obeying Christ's words? No. This does not mean we rest from obeying. It means we obey from a place of rest. We obey from a place of rest. Paul Washer writes, The Christian can strive for the loftiest goals of devotion without fear. Without fear. We can fail and get up time and time again without detriment to our hope or joy because our standing before God is fixed upon the perfect work of Christ. Our standing is fixed. It cannot be moved by our sins or our failures or our shortcomings. It cannot be moved. 
Washer goes on to say, and Jesus' love for us is immutable and unassailable. It is unchanging, it is unwavering, it is everlasting. There is nothing that we can do to change it. His love is fixed upon you and upon me. So, believers, if you strive hard to do as Israel did here and recommit to God's word and recommit to his commands, you will very often blow it. You will fail. You will sin. But don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. For all your sin is forgiven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the forgiveness that we find in your Son. Thank you that we fall and we fall and we fall and he just keeps picking us back up and back up and back up again. Thank you for unending, never waving eternal love and grace found in Jesus. What a Savior. What a Savior we have. And we do pray that we can recommit. Yes, we recommit to your word. Recommit to these beautiful, life-giving words that you have blessed us with. Knowing that we are free. We are free to follow them. Because your love for us never wavers. That our sins are forgiven by the blood of your Son. What a gift you've given us in Jesus. And Father, we are grateful for the gift that you have given us in the Lord's Supper that we are about to take. This tangible expression of your Son's great love and great sacrifice on our behalf. And Father, it's in your Son's name we pray.